This week, first up is the Enterprise Security News, SALT Security, uh, API Protection Explained, Thycotic leads the way for cloud-based privilege access management, ZeroFox is launching an AI-powered advanced email protection for Google and Microsoft platforms, Elasticstack 7.6 delivers automated threat analysis and response, and 12,000 plus Jenkins servers can be exploited to launch an amplified distributed denial service attack. In our second segment, we welcome David Waugh. He's the Chief Revenue Officer at Managed Methods. We're going to talk about K-12 schools, are the victims, how they are the victims of phishing campaigns and what we can do to help. In our final segment, Jeff Dinager? Dinager? I don't know. Dinager? Principal Sales Engineer at uh, for Cloud at ExtraHop, discussing how to secure cloud workloads and reduce friction in cloud-native network detection and response. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. The Viavi Solutions Observer Platform provides SecOps teams a powerful combination of comprehensive data for threat hunting and incident response that includes wire data analytics and enriched flow records. Using pure, unaltered packet and net flow, Observer presents views across the entire IT infrastructure with threat alert features including scope, impact, and advanced traffic profiling. Teams can use automated workflows to dive into high-fidelity network evidence and more quickly resolve issues, minimizing impact on customers, users, and business operations. Learn more about the Viavi Network Security Solution and download free resources at securityweekly.com forward slash Viavi. That's V-I-A-V-I. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome everyone to episode number 172 of Enterprise Security Weekly for February 12th, 2020. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, joined by Mr. Matt Alderman here in studio. I know you're happy to see me, but you don't need to cry. I know. (laughs) I've got this like weird eye issue going on. And right as we were starting the, the show, Matt had his cigar and the ashtray between us, and the smoke went like right in my already irritated eye. So, yeah. so I made him cry, everybody. I'm, I'm sorry. so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy John's here. I moved to tears. What's up? John Strand is here remotely. How are you? Not much. I'm super stoked to be here as well, and I'm, I'm touched that you're touched. Right. Um, and I have to ask, you usually have one computer, your Mac. What is that other shiny computer that you have there oh, as well? Oh, it's a, a Google Chromebook. It is a Chromebook. Yeah, it's like a the very one, sharp looking Chromebook. Yeah, the one from Google. It works pretty good. It's really small and light, although doesn't work well if you're trying to like do Linux stuff or deploy containers. But works good <laughs> for like email and spreadsheets and stuff, right? 
It's a great browser <laughs> interface. <laughs> Pretty much is what it ends up being, right? Well, everything's in the browser, right? That's it. So. Oh, quick announcement before we get started. Um, one of them is there. InfoSec World 2020, March 30th through April 1st at Disney's Contemporary Resort. Our listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World main pass, uh, main conference or world pass. Securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2020. Go there. Uh, Matt and I are doing a container security day. And um, if you are a vendor and you'd like to sponsor an interview, you can do that as well. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Come to Disney World with us. It'll be fun. Alrighty, Enterprise Security News for this week. Uh, a couple of uh, interesting things. I actually was surprised how many announcements. Yeah, you're starting to see a little bit of uh, kind of... We talked about this, I think, last week. Not a lot of news. Now you're starting to see the news start to pick up because everybody's right. getting ready for RSA conference in a couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see some early announcements trying to get people to come see them at their booths and stuff. So there's some interesting announcements in here. Uh, Insight completes the acquisition of Armist. Did we talk about this already? Yeah. I okay. mean, we, we knew Armist yeah. was being acquired for $1.1 billion. It's just the completion of the acquisition. It's official. Um, the largest Israeli cybersecurity acquisition, I think, is is what this was dubbed as uh, when it was initially announced. Yeah, a few that's weeks a pretty back. high price tag. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big, big, price value, tag. big valuation. They must yeah. have had some serious sales to warrant that, <laughs> right? IoT is hot, so look out, baby. Right? <sighs> they got yeah, and it was timing wise, I think, very. Yeah, very probably. Well yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Logic Hub launches an MDR Plus to provide flexible end-to-end detection and response. So uh, this one I thought was really interesting, and I've been watching the MDR space pretty closely for a while now. And the way it appears to me is most MDRs, uh, like if you have an MSSP, they're going to incorporate a whole bunch of different log sources. They'll, they'll ingest your logs off your servers, your endpoint security products, your firewalls, things of that nature. And what you're seeing with MDR is basically focusing on the tools that actually work. Like you're focusing on endpoint protection suites. Maybe um, I think Gartner said that MDR solutions to be complete need to have a network and an endpoint component. And I I just expect MDR to continue to explode just because the log industry is such a complete train wreck. Yeah, Um, We're focusing on endpoint solutions that actually are detecting attacks. And uh, Logic Hub, actually, um, I know one of their founders, Monica Jane, she's been on some of our uh, segments before, and uh, she's awesome. She came from HP, uh, and I believe the other co-founder also came uh, from HP, and they were doing the enterprise log management Mm. uh, stuff at HP, and they spawned off and created their own company. So it doesn't surprise me that they're uh, going strong and from the looks of it being very successful in making product. John, is this the evolution of where the MSSP market goes? Is yes, they have this to is offer where I think these? All of MSSP is going to have to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's just because, like I said, the log log industry is is a complete dumpster fire. Has been for twenty years. Um, the other thing that I really like about what Logic Hub is doing that I think is really cool is they're hitting all the right buttons to basically tell me that they actually have real tech geeks working there. They do. Um, they're talking yes. about triggering alerts based on the MITRE attack technique framework and then contextual information. Um, finally starting to use threat intelligent information and pull it together in a way that's actually meaningful. So I, I loved this. This was a great press release. This is one of those things that I will be showing my customers because um, it looks like they're hitting all the right, all the right, uh, all the right firing points. I did a briefing with them very early on uh, in their uh, lifetime of the company. And 
I'm pleasantly surprised because I knowing some of the people that, like I said, that work there, I'm like, you guys have to have an awesome vision and product. And I haven't talked to them probably in a couple of years. So it's nice to see, John, your analysis of this, that they've stayed true um, and are really focusing on the challenges that we face as security engineers. What I like about this is, look, you can read this press release and actually understand what's going on. Yeah. Right? It is well articulated. Uh, they kind of hit the high points of what's included. It's really easy to read. There's a number of these, and there's a few in here this week. You read it, and you're like, Yo, I, I don't understand what that means. <laughs> so this was actually well-crafted. Yeah, I, so I was kind of confused with Tufin's announcement. Now, I've also briefed with Tufin a couple of times, and like their stuff is solid. Like they're, When you get them on the phone and they walk you through it, I'm like, it's, it's awesome stuff. They were a sponsor here for uh, a little while on the shows. Um, but just reading the title of this, I'm like, I have no idea what, what they're announcing. And I'm sure it's something really awesome. Uh, higher <laughs> degree of confidence because I've actually breathed with them, right? Um, but this, it just, it doesn't, they use too many buzzwords. I don't know if that's I, like, is it just I, as simple as not using as many buzzwords? I, I think what happened is it, this honestly looks to me like they went to a marketing person and said, we need a release. Get it out there now. And they did. And yep. this is this is total, complete garbage. And you're right. Tufin has cool stuff. This doesn't represent the company, but this won't this won't drive any business for them. It won't get people to their booths at RSA. It's just just garbage. I I, I had to go to their website and to dig into what the secure cloud thing was. I, I even on the web website, I really don't fully understand it. It looks like it, it's trying to do aspects of uh, source destination in the cloud and supposedly correlating that with the on-prem stuff, but I. You know, when I look at it, I, I still don't, it right. talks about containers and other stuff and, I'm, and micro segmentation. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of words in there. What, what does it actually do? What yeah. I, what I found interesting. I, is I, I agree with Paul. There's going to be something really, really cool here. Yeah. But as far as this write up, whoever is the technical person talking to the marketing people and providing them with information, this fell through. It didn't get proper copy. Um, they didn't get the right information to the person that was writing it. It doesn't look like it was validated by anyone technical. This is pretty much textbook. This is not how you do marketing releases, period. So, like, I, I need this, by the way, because anytime you get up into the cloud and then you start putting more applications in the mm -hmm. cloud and you're having more users in the cloud, now I want to know, okay, what permissions does everyone have? What permissions do all of my services mm -hmm. have? And then what are the rules that govern communications between them? Amazon gives you some tools to do that, but now I understand why there's an entire, maybe multiple segments in security dedicated to this. Because even in just one cloud provider, I'm like, yeah, I need help with that. And like right now, it's small enough where Mars and I can go through it manually, but quickly, even in a small environment, that's going to get out of control. And you could make some pretty major mistakes, like we see people exposing S3 buckets and, and other security things where you're just exposing services that should not be exposed to other services or to the internet. My guess is what they're doing is they're leveraging the cloud APIs to pull in some of this information and visualize yep. it so people can see it. Mm -hmm. But you can't tell that from the press release is what they're doing. No, But that's my guess is what they're right. doing. Right. And Thionic's press release is a little bit better. Um, but it's still pretty rough. Oh, you mean uh, thychotic? Thychotic, sorry. Yeah, I mean, this is, look, there's, there's, okay, what's the news story here? The company achieves more than 400% growth. So it's a toot your own horn kind of press release. I didn't see anything material in here like 
new capabilities, new functionality. It's like, here's how great we were in 2019, and we just need to get a press release out before RSA to get some traction. But that's all I read out of this. But my, so I got a question for you on that, though. Is this something that's written for like tech people like us, or is this something that's written for people that are looking for potential companies to invest or buy? I, I think the latter. John, right? Is this is, hey, by the way, we're out here, we're growing. If you're interested in acquiring in the space, maybe we're available. Maybe um, that's the best I can think on this press release because from a technical perspective, from a security practitioner perspective, there's nothing in here worth note to me. Um, So I think this is more gauged to investors and potential acquirers uh, to really try to get their resume out there. I, so yeah, I don't oh, it, oh, the ahead. privileged access management. It's that's kind of interesting. I mean, when uh, Marston was actually just looking at yesterday, you know, assigning the proper roles to users in AWS. I mean, then your applications also have a concept of a user, of course, and a privileged user. And then the name of the product is Secret Server Cloud. Does that mean it does application secrets too? What is what is in, how does it help me yeah, above I, I and beyond what's already there know. in the various cloud providers for managing? I mean, I guess if you're managing ten thousand uh, mm-hmm. credentials in AWS, but this wasn't written for you. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I need it or not. <laughs> I guess is my that's my thought. But if you're looking for a Pam investment, right? They're there. Uh, RSA NetWitness. Anyone? Um, no, well, this. this I, Go ahead, John. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, I love NetWitness. Um, I, I, I love the product. I, I love the way it smells whenever you log into it. I love how they're trying to pull everything together um, from like the network side, the log side, the UBA side. I love everything about it. It, it makes me cry tears of joy. However, uh, before the <laughs> like marketing me? team starts uh, starts quoting me, uh, as much as I, I like, I'm a super tech geek and I love this tool and I love it whenever I see it. There's a ton of our customers that end up purchasing it and then let it lapse because they're like, what is this crap? Um, it, like the learning curve is very steep for getting into NetWitness. It's very, very hard for people to start using it. You almost need to have a PhD um, to start using it properly. It kind of reminds me of like Squirrel, which was bought by, I believe, Amazon a while ago. They're super cool product, amazing for super tech geeks. But at the end of the day, I just don't see a lot of just general line companies using the product just because it has that steep learning curve. Uh, but no, I'm a huge NetWitness fan. Um, even before they were bought by RSA, right before, right during the RSA breach or after they were purchased. Correct. Um, it was so right after because cool. I was there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, I it, lived, it's awesome. I lived uh, this life cycle. Product, yes. Um, look, it, they do a lot to pull a lot of data together. But to your point, John, it is a steep learning curve. This is a highly technical tool. I mean, it is rich with information and data. It, um, what I think they're trying to do a couple things. One, UEBA, which we know is a feature SIM, um, is being added. Great. And then this whole concept of the uh, RSA NetWitness Orchestrator, right? Talking mm-hmm. SOAR, it's, it's taking that SIM kind of platform where they're pulling endpoint and log data and all this other stuff together. Now adding orchestration capabilities. We've seen these announcements from others. We've seen acquisitions in this space. So RSA is continuing to move that product along. If they could make it easier to use um, and deploy. I think the other big challenge with NetWitness is its deployment model with all the decoders mm-hmm. and concentrators and all the things you have to do. It gets pretty complex even to uh, 
design and implement, right? Um, and, and get well, it laid and, out in your network. And, and to be honest, if I was a if I was a CISO and I had an unlimited budget, this would probably be one of the first products that I would implement. And then the next thing I would do is make sure that I had somebody that could make it sing. Um, but that's that's a heavy lift. Uh, that is a very heavy lift in an organization. But when it is running and it is running well, it's an amazing product. But I very rarely see it running really, really well. In fact, one of the areas I was joking about needing a PhD, um, I had a student uh, that was from a company and she was just an absolute netwinist ninja. And uh, she actually had a PhD. And uh, she was talking about how much she loved the product. So eh, it, it, it's tough, right, to recommend products like this unless you're willing to put the budget and the time and the resources into it. Yeah, you need the people. Yeah, you definitely need mm -hmm. the skill set to run this tool. Um, Zero Fox, I thought, had an interesting oh announcement getting into email protection for Google and Microsoft platforms. And I'm not sure if this is an API uh, hook into Google. Well, it has to be. It would have to be, right? Yeah. Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, the other way that you can do is you could set it up as a gateway that forwards your email through their service to Microsoft or Google. Right. Like um, it's 1998, of course. <laughs> yep. 96. Yeah. yeah. Seven, eight. Um, um, but, but this, <laughs> but this, this approach, but this approach, Greathorn uh, did a lot to educate ourselves and our audience on this approach and why it's if you're basically your emails in the cloud. Most people have their email hosted in, in the cloud, probably in either Google or Microsoft. Correct. Uh, it's why it's so important to have a vendor that can hook into the API, do the analysis and mitigation through the API integration. It sounds like ZeroFox has has built this. They're kind of late to the party. Greathorn, I believe, is the market leader uh, in this space. I think they were first to market with this technology. There's others in the space as well. If you're not using one of these solutions, you you should be, basically. So, so I, I disagree. I'm going to take a contrarian point of view. Um, specifically as it relates to Microsoft. Google, I agree 110%, because it appears to me that Google does not care about enterprise security, does not care about compliance. They just don't. But if we're looking at Microsoft, the whole idea of this is you receive a whole bunch of emails, create all kinds of different weighting, artificial intelligence algorithms and things like that to identify attack patterns, and then you protect your customers. And that's great. How can you convince me that you're doing it better than Microsoft? And I think that that becomes a very hard sell for my customers whenever they're trying to purchase these products. If you're looking at how much Microsoft has grown over the past 18 months, um, ATP and then all the security offerings that are built into, uh, into Office 365 and to Azure, I cannot recommend to my customers that this is going to be a better security solution than what you have built into Microsoft. Itself. So Microsoft uh, has the um, capability to detect targeted phishing attacks and work with your business processes to let you define rules as to what actions should or not should not be taken based on a targeted phishing attack. Yeah, they're not going to use that. Uh, most of your customers wouldn't. Hold on, I'm about to lose power. Uh, but yeah, so even with that, there's a bunch of different response capabilities that are actually built into Microsoft whenever you're looking into Office 365. Right. And most of these solutions that we actually see implemented, um, they don't work. There's a ton of bypass techniques. For example, you can create a document, Paul. Let's say that we're both, let's say that you work in a Microsoft shop and I'm going to send you a spear phishing attachment. What I can do is I can actually create that document as a protected document and I can send it to you. Yes. And as soon as I do that, it completely bypasses any of the protection that's in place simply because the technologies do not have the ability to actually look into that email 
or the attachment whatsoever. So you have this problem. And, and I love what these companies have to say. I get it. But every time I'm seeing these companies implemented, there is little to no improved security whatsoever above and beyond what we see for the standard Microsoft protection suite. I'm I'm curious because you know Zero Fox isn't known for email, right? This is a right. whole new set of capabilities for them. They were really focused more on the social media account takeover, impersonation on the social media stuff. Now they're moving over into this email abuse and phishing. And, and it's is it a logical leap to go there? Or yeah, it's definitely very different from what Zero Fox is traditionally done. Exactly right. right. Which is why I'm kind of. It's just an interesting announcement. It's not one I would expect from Zero Fox because they've right. spent a lot of their time building out capabilities to protect social media accounts. I get it. Email gets abused and, and compromised and it all over the place, but there's a bajillion of these companies already out there. How do they get a foothold into this market with mm -hmm. so many other players there? I, I, this one just kind of threw me off a bit. And for John's point, for the vendors such as Greathorn and others, I'd like to see the the differences. And Kevin probably explained it. <laughs> he did <laughs> to part us, of it. I mean, to us, I don't think we ever directly asked him that question. John has a lot more hands-on experience, right? Because I think he's pushed BHS all the way into um, Office 365 for email, and the same way we use G Suite, John's using it, and a lot of his customers are, and he's got a lot deeper knowledge in there. So I'd be curious to see the data sheet, right? Of what capabilities there are yeah. different. Because I'm sure it, it's not the first time anyone's ever questioned. So what do you provide above and beyond what Microsoft provides today? Right. And of course, that changes over time. Yeah. You know, vendors, third-party vendors increase their capabilities. The hosting provider, or you know, in this case, the email provider, Microsoft, increases their capabilities. What's, what, 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 I what remember, capabilities do you get? What I remember out of Great Horn that kind of really differentiated them was making the information very visible within the email itself. Correct. Right. Part of what they were doing was really trying to make it easy for customers to look at an email and go, this is suspicious because they embedded alerting capabilities right In into the, the body of the message itself right. versus trying to be this right. uh, off to the side kind of solution. Right? That's on, what I saw at a great horn that really an differentiated. An Android that. phone using an email client of some kind. Right. What does Microsoft do for me? Probably nothing. Right. Yeah. And so it, it was embedding those types of alerts and that information into the body of the message right. that I think really differentiates Greathorn over some of these other email right. uh, solutions. And could, I mean, could differentiate ZeroFox as well. Could. However, I, I can't tell from this. Not only do you have to compete with the third-party providers, you also have to compete with the platform providers. Mm -hmm. So the entry into this market, like just starting like ground zero is, is difficult. You have to have some unique... Uh, creative features from the get-go just to get above, like what John's saying, what Microsoft provides. Let How do I do it the different and or better right. than anything else out there? You have to differentiate yourself in a market like this. It's, high, it's really crowded. Right. I think John lost power. I think so, too. He might join us back. We'll see. I want his insight, though. So I know. We want him back. Um, Salt Security API protection explained. Um, I haven't looked at API security companies in a while. Uh, this was a little explainer uh, video on what they do. Uh, I thought there was more here, but uh, increasingly, I mean, our entire uh, new architecture largely hinges upon APIs. API like, communication. I mean, this, is, this is where the market's going, right? You, you and I have been on this train for a while. 
is that as we build microservice-based architectures, yep. the amount of API communication increases, mm -hmm. who is focused on protecting those APIs, right? And so you've got Salt Security and a few others in the space really starting to tackle the problem of API security. Um, very important uh, set of requirements needed here. This is where the market's moving, in my opinion. APIs is a big part of the application security umbrella moving forward. Straight up train wreck. Hey, he's there back. we go. He's back. Yay. Yeah, Your back. diesel generators have kicked in. The diesel generators. Thank you. I hope you have a one big UPS over there. Oh, my God. No, I don't have anything like that set up in the studio. I was upstairs, and then we had all those weird issues, and I moved down here, and I realized that my power was off uh, to the, the power strip. That It's just, never mind. It's, <laughs> let's not get into it. Have we gotten to deep learning yet? No, I, no that was I, next. I was, I was waiting well, for you I to want, come back on. <laughs> on. On the API, I have not, like, I've read a little bit about Amazon's API gateway, but I haven't dug into, I think there's a lot of, well, my concern uh, security, right? How are they implementing security? Uh, but I also think there's a lot of great features and functionality in there that I haven't really unlocked mm. as to the full capability of the API gateway. John, I think you have one of your guys has a, or gals has a product, uh, an open source project rather, that can use the API gateway in some capacity to rotate IP addresses for scanning or um, something like that, right? Yeah, that was Mike Felch, and the name of the tool is Fireprox. Uh, so it basically creates right. a proxy where you can run your scanning and attack activity, and it rotates through. It is essentially oh, an API proxy. That's really hmm. what it is. Yep, yeah. yep, and it's, it works really well, and it's super neat. That's awesome. So you want to go to Deep Instinct? Deep Instinct, yeah. $43 million raise for security company... Puts them at hundred million total. Instinct, and arguably the greatest hair. Yeah, agreed. Any of oh, without question, without question, without question. And I'm not even saying that like I'm ripping on it. I'm just no, like he makes it work, dude. Yeah, I couldn't dude, pull that this off. This guy, I want to write him a million dollar check or a hundred million dollar <laughs> check. It's just. <sighs> oh, you guys. Are um, funny. Uh, what What does Deep Instinct but, do? I've seen them uh, around. Um, I've the not done a briefing. Could, the best I could tell from the website is it's another um, endpoint protection Arctrix. solution. Yeah. Well, it looks like it does network level too. Uh, so I would almost say it looks close to like a dark trace, maybe. Because mm. I see advanced what? endpoint, advanced mobile, oh, and mobile, automatic yeah. threat analysis. This is What's like interesting is endpoint products. They're one of the few security vendors that I have seen to support Chrome OS. He says Windows, iOS, Android, Chrome OS, and Mac OS. That's... I mean, if you think about your attack surface, right, it's not just limited to Windows. And I mean, sure, nation states right. all the way down to your uh, everyday script kitty goes after Windows systems because it's the most popular. But you've got a lot more technology that isn't Windows and maybe isn't Mac OS, maybe isn't even really Linux. I mean, Chrome well, OS is essentially look at, Linux. Yeah, look at, look at what's sitting in front of us, right? right? You've got a Linux, a Chromebook, Chromebook OS, and then a Mac OS, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. On so, Linux here too. So. Yeah. But I, but I have to ask, Guys, really, does the industry need another endpoint security vendor? This is my this I, is my point. Yeah, I, I agree with you, John. Right, we've seen a ton of these companies. We've seen some consolidation here. Again, you have to think about the end goal. What's the exit? Deep Instinct might be the only one to support Chrome OS, though. Maybe <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just true. like that's legit. <laughs> that might be so their niche. If you think about your computing platforms, though, right? If you go to Office three sixty five and G Suite. 
why do most of your employees need a Windows-based laptop that has all that attack surface on it? They right don't. now, I'm sure Chrome OS has uh, Chrome OS has an attack surface as well. It's largely unexplored. Is it good? Is it bad? I I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen John. Have yeah. you seen anyone researching exploits in Chrome OS? Uh, yeah, Chrome no, OS. No, and I'm sure that there's people out there. That, I mean, you know, pwn to own type things. Yeah. But I, I I just okay. So here's some problems that I have with this. All right. So if we go back to Silence's early days. One of the big problems that Silence had was they were trying to do pure machine learning for everything that they did. And that sounds great um, until you actually know what you're talking about. Then it sounds incredibly stupid. But one of the issues that you run into is if you're doing pure, quote unquote, deep learning artificial intelligence is you can actually trick the algorithm uh, into thinking that a uh, evil file is good or the inverse, a good file is evil. And if you want a great case study in this, look at Microsoft today, um, put it out on Twitter, all of a sudden, Tay's got AI, you communicate with it, and in less than a day, it's like a Nazi. Um, you can do that same type of thing whenever you're trying to feed in uh, files into a deep learning algorithm to train it because it has to deal with that training set. So that's a problem. And whenever you start implementing blacklists, on top of that, it actually helps alleviate a lot of that pressure. And Silence had trouble because they didn't really have blacklists, so they started using VirusTotal. If you remember a couple of years ago, they got into a little bit of trouble with virus total because they were kind of abusing it a little bit. All right. Now they say that they support blacklist at Deep, Deep Instinct, and that's that's cool. At least they've kind of thought that through. But if we're looking at the game, right? If you're going to be training algorithms and you're going to be training artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, and you're doing it in a quasi unsupervised state, it's only as good as the amount of data and the type of data that feeds into it. And the less data that you have, the more likely you are to flip it into making a mistake, right? How in the hell do you compete with Microsoft ATP? Um, how in the hell do you compete with a Silence or a CrowdStrike that have a much larger installation base and a much larger head start on you? And you can't just show up and say, well, we're better because you're all using the exact same damn artificial intelligence algorithms. So fundamentally, what makes this thing unique? And you cannot say that there's black magic under the hood. We've created new algorithms. That's, that's garbage, right? Anybody that knows anything about artificial intelligence algorithms is going to basically laugh and walk away. But so John, John, what they is, say... What are they doing that's fundamentally different well, other they than say, Chromebooks? They say that they have a neural network. Oh, well, neural networks. Well, <laughs> I stand... So does CrowdStrike. I, I mean, I'm crying out loud. I don't want to knock deep instinct... Yeah. Uh, I, either, I, the only thing I see differentiated in here is around the mobile support. Yeah, agreed. Because your traditional endpoint protections are really going after Windows, Macs, Mac, Linux. If you can truly support Android, iOS, and Chrome OS, I, that's where I see the differentiation agreed. here. That's it. Uh, otherwise, there's a ton of these other solutions out there. That's a yeah. big... But to me, that's a big differentiation. Yeah, I think it could be. Yeah. Because look, if we look at Intel CPU sales clicking down we see mobile devices clicking up yep. the the landscape shifting away from mm -hmm. why do i need this whole big full os here and this big attack surface why not move to one of these where i, I have a smaller footprint there is a big market have in you, mobile have you seen the foldable screen phones no they're becoming more and more uh prevalent on the market i still think we're a ways away from everyone having a foldable screen phone i but, like it it's right hot. i think I it looks one. i mean <laughs> cool. right the nerd in me is like that's awesome i want one the early ones i think from samsung like we're not ready 
uh, for market is the best I could. Uh, but when you can observe. take a, a, a phone that's in your pocket it. and open it into a tablet, right? Yeah, that's where the market's shifting. That's where their differentiation is. That's what I would key on if I were them to drive it because yeah. that puts them in a different class. And everybody talks about mobile and how the explosion of mobile and how I'm going to increase my revenue. Most of the security vendors out there can't do anything with mobile. Right. It's, it's mm-hmm. very true. Well, and that gets into a question of how exactly are they doing it? Because right? if you're talking about mobile and you're loading onto like an iOS device, uh, how? Because yeah, uh, are you breaking, are you, are you jailbreaking the device to be able to see all of the applications? Yeah. Like, can you detect attacks against the Skype app on an iOS device and break that sandboxing? So there's some really interesting questions, I think, that have to come into play here. There, and uh, once again, I, I, Paul, I think, is right to kind of diffuse this a little bit. There might be something really cool that Deep, Deep Instinct is doing. They're an Israeli company. That is, Israel has been rocking out just amazing products over the past couple of years. I looked at their management team. These guys have really good backgrounds. But my question is, how in the hell do you compete with the people that are already on this particular um, platform? Unless your sole goal is to be bought by somebody else that wants to compete with a Silence or a CrowdStrike. That, that may be a play here as well. Yeah. Yeah, they're using the zero day from the Saudis to um, on the iOS device, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> it might be. Dude, and if we get them on the phone and they're like, yeah, we've got jailbreaks, we jailbreak Android, iOS, and then we watch everything, all right, rock on. That's pretty badass. I like that a lot. Um, but otherwise, how do you get the visibility that you need all the way through? Right. Oh, uh, sorry. The Jenkins article was just a reminder that I need to make sure I, I update our own Jenkins server. <laughs> and or just move it into Amazon's uh, ECR. I got to get John's yep. um, comments on CypherCloud's CASB Plus for Slack. I, why in the hell is this one specific app? I mean, uh, so... <laughs> I think everybody knows my stance on Casbys in general, but now you have a Casby Plus for a single I'm, application. I'm like not Slack. sure for why, a single but app. see, I'm not sure why they use the term Casby here. I mean, I guess Slack is a a cloud uh, based tool, right? But in my concerns with Slack is that it is a cloud based tool, and I don't have visibility into exactly what they're doing under the covers. Can you take Slack and run it locally? Can you, if you have like a large enterprise, can you take it off their cloud and run it on prem? I think it's going to be the standalone applications. Um, and if you're going to do that, I think you would probably run Mattermost. Yeah, um, but, exactly. But, but okay, so here's the thing about this. This is going to work. Seriously. Because when people are looking at CASBs and they're talking about this kind of nebulous idea, right, of what a CASB is, as soon as you start talking about a specific application that is used by God and everybody, they're going to get sales off of this. Like this is actually brilliant marketing. But I don't think this uh, is. But I don't think this is a bad uh, messaging, positioning, and product. No. I think it's. I think it's awesome. If you God. think about what's shared in Slack, how do you gain visibility? Yeah. Oh, yeah. into it, right? Agreed. I mean, people Agreed. are sharing files. Is- the ability to detect sensitive data. Um, this is, I mean, I, Slack is like the de facto standard now for communications. It, I, I, I mean, people, is it Microsoft Teams? Is that the yeah team team yeah. Uh, is the one Ooh. from Microsoft, yeah. right? Ouch. But I mean, Slack has to be the market leader and it's use in dev teams uh, is, is like 
very prevalent. The, the only so thing I, I don't like good. about the concept of a CASB is you have to take all these remote users and shove them through the CASB to yeah, get to the Slack. I, I, and why, they probably sit on they sit. Why are just they outside. calling it CASB Plus uh, for Slack? I uh, mean, I they should know. just be because they're it. using a term that everybody kind of knows. I think instead of coming up with something a little more innovative. Look, we, we it, it, NG was taken. They couldn't do CASB <laughs> NG, so they're doing CASB Plus. And honestly, if we're going to do it right, it should have been CASB Plus Plus, but. Whatever, but a visibility protection and control of your user activity on Slack and doesn't relate to the term CASB for me, right? Like they should have just called it VPC for Slack visibility protection and control. Slack VPC, right? See, there you go. Yeah, about the AWS there you go. VPC. Now you're yes. getting that. But anyway, because awesome. I think I think that's great. I think especially. Uh, you know, we have a very small amount of people that use Slack here at Security Weekly. But now, let's say you have fifty thousand employees. Right. How do you manage, monitor, control what's going on uh, in Slack? Yeah, I, I'm just going to give CypherCloud a round of applause because I think that this is brilliant, and I think it's it's hard to pick out the the marketing propaganda and the hype to something that is actually going to be effective at driving sales. And they did a great job here. Right. Agreed. Um, Elastic Stack seven point six. Yay! So I have not uh, played with the Elastic Stack, uh, Slack, uh, Elastic, Elastic Stack, Stack or uh, Elastic Search, um, other than just you know the prepackaged uh, kind of things that come with certain open source and commercial uh, products. But yep. uh, you know, in speaking with the team uh, at Elastic, uh, you know, obviously they did the end game acquisition. Uh, I, they're just, they're up to awesome things. And, uh, well, and everybody, this is like, they're basically where, if you guys remember when Splunk was first on the scene and all the cool kids were using Splunk, yep. mm-hmm. that's where Elastic is right now. Agreed. And um, uh, we're using it, we're releasing an open source tool called Selkie that's going to ingest Sysmon um, and then correlate network detection with things like Rita and AI Hunter. Um, so was that, was I, that I think Carlos, cool. Perez, Carlos, Perez that? Did, Carlos Perez did some work at Trusted Selk. Oh. With Sysmon. Some. Some. some they did, I Trusted mean, Sec like, just released the super awesome definitive Sysmon guide yes, last week. that's what it was. That's early. what I saw. It's amazing. Um, and then also SpectreOps uh, with the Helk stack um, is really, really, really cool. But the MITRE attack framework integration is, is cool. Um, there's a bunch of other people that are working on a number of different uh, other open source dashboards. And then also check out the Sigma project because the Sigma project allows you to write signatures in Sigma and then you can incorporate them into Elasticsearch or you can incorporate them into Splunk. It basically is like this language for writing signatures that can be automatically translated to the sim of your choosing. So this is cool. Um, and with tools like Sigma and Elasticsearch, I think that we're getting into some really cool correlation with, uh, with using Elasticsearch. It's not, I hate to say it's like the same problems as a sim, especially whenever you layer networking and you layer Sysmon on top of it. Um, so there's some exciting things happening there. Yeah, and there's more to come, I think, from Elastic when they fully integrate in the end game acquisition into the stack. And I think we'll see more from them later in the year um, as, as end game and all this stuff comes together. Because now you're going to add all this additional endpoint capabilities into um, the logs and, and the other things that Elastic Stack already does. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you both for rounding out the news for this segment. Without take a short break, come back with David Watt uh, from Managed Methods for an interview. Stay tuned.
Security can't solve crucial problems when they have to wade through thousands of alerts a day. With ServiceNow, you can easily prioritize and respond to your most crucial business threats. That way you can go from overwhelmed to under control. ServiceNow brings security, risk, and IT together on one platform. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash ServiceNow. When it comes to modernizing identity, Active Directory just makes everything harder. From managing access for contractors and departing employees to securing cloud apps and on-prem systems, your company deserves better. Choose Okta, the modern identity platform that securely connects anyone that touches your organization to any technology they want to use. Okta reduces AD vulnerabilities, secures not only employees, but contractors and customers, simplifies domain consolidation, and reduces your attack surface. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Okta. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Uh, just a quick announcement before we get started. RSA is coming up very soon. Securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2020. Uh, lots of things you can do on that website. One, you can save $150 off a pass to RSA. You can schedule time with us at RSA. Um, specifically, we are doing interviews where you get to describe the problem and solution if you work for a vendor in an interview with our experts. Um, and if you want to sponsor a show, we still have availability. Yes. So we're recording and broadcasting shows live from RSA. If you want to do uh, a sponsored segment on one of those shows, uh, please contact us, securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2020. Our guest for this segment, David Watt. Did I say that right? Okay. It sounds like a Chinese last name, but it's not. Um, <laughs> managed, managed, met, uh, managed Methods uh, is the company, and you are the chief revenue officer uh, with 20 years of experience in enterprise software. David, welcome to the program. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here today. Fellow Coloradan. That's right. I'm not in Colorado. Otherwise, I could have gone up to your offices. You I go. could have been there with you in Boulder. But I'm in studio this week instead. I, that's right. I, I I think you could have been here at our office, and instead you're in the the world headquarters there on the uh, other other coast, the other side of the country. Yes. So, uh, cybersecurity for K through 12 schools is that what your company and your mission is focused on today? Yes, that's absolutely correct. We are focused for K through 12 school districts around the country to help with the increasing threats that are facing them out there today. And education uh, is is now adopting technology faster than ever before. And uh, I see it firsthand as a father uh, and as a husband because my wife works in a school district right mm -hmm. here in Colorado. Uh, and I have a nine-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son who have been on Chromebooks using Google since they were in kindergarten. And, and do, uh, now, do they have their own Instagram accounts and TikTok accounts? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel I feel bad for my kids, and I'm going to have to be very uh, kind of careful how they do this, having their dad work in the cybersecurity industry. And uh, it's kind of funny whenever my 14-year-old, my any of his friends come in the house, we have a rule of thumb. It's my son doesn't have a phone yet. I, mm -hmm. My wife and I have kind of agreed that once he becomes a freshman, he gets a mobile phone. But when any of his friends come in the house, they know the rule of thumb. We have kind of a, a, a bin by the front door, and they all have to put their devices in that bin because they know I'll, I'll bust them for doing something they're not supposed to. <laughs> That's yeah. really funny. 
See, and I thought I was a hard dad, right? <laughs> I, I see. I, I, well, I follow my son on TikTok and Instagram as well as others. So there's multiple checks and balances. But I don't know if I'm more fearful. Actually, I'm more fearful for TikTok and Instagram than I am for my son. <laughs> I don't know if I'm protecting the providers from my son or my son from from other things. I think it's both, but. <laughs> Yeah, that's that could be a whole nother show, uh, right? Social social media security should be a whole nother show and topic, but uh, yes, yes. Uh, so it, it, to answer your question, yes, we are K through twelve cybersecurity. So, so uh, yeah. So do yeah. you have products, or do you help uh, the schools uh, adopt products and processes and training? We are a software company, so we're a software as a service, and uh, as you as you talked about in your previous segment, we were actually born out of that. Casby boom that mm-hmm. happened. So the company we got started in the you know got operations going in the summer of fourteen and put our first product into the market in um, uh, the spring of twenty seventeen. And you know as we were going through that journey, uh, we were one of the you know kind of outliers of the Casby market. Um, as you gentlemen well know, the Casby market really was focused on a, a proxy agent kind of world where you had to shove everybody in through a, uh, a one size fits all bucket of a proxy endpoint agent gateway, etc. Matt's a huge um, fan of that. By I the way. love that technology. <sighs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it. He gets up on his soapbox <laughs> every time. Uh, well, you'll, you'll, you'll see us get riled up about it too. We were, <laughs> we were basically one of a handful of vendors that came into the Casbeam market and said, no, there's, there's, different types of them. And we didn't necessarily adhere to the CASB rules. We basically came out as an API based solution and that's what we are. So we're a 100% software as a service API based uh, security platform. We just got bulked in by groups like Gartner and, and uh, 451 research and IDC and others as you know, we kind of got shoved into that CASB bucket. So originally when we started the company, we weren't solely focused on K through 12. We serviced, um, Everybody, K through 12, higher ed, we had government customers, we had financial services companies, sports companies, uh, you know, we we're in all industries. But um, as we started to just identify and, and do more analysis on the market, we just saw this, this unmet opportunity in the K through 12 market. And, um, uh, you know, I believe that at some point we'll, we'll, we'll expand into higher education. We have some higher education clientele right now, but the K through 12 market is in desperate need and uh we're we're serving that need and and we're growing rapidly uh in fact i'm i'm trying to get uh I, i'm we're hiring so if, nice. you're in, if you're looking for a sales position in in uh, uh cybersecurity industry uh reach out to managemethods.com so david we were having another discussion in the previous segment uh when john was actually dropping off but uh it's a very similar to the email protection we were talking about before where you have api hooks into either Google or, or Office 365 to provide various levels of protection and monitoring, right? Mm-hmm. What, what specifically, um, in, in each case, do you provide above and beyond what the providers offer in terms of security, visibility, and control? Uh, that, uh, Paul, that's a great question. Uh, well, you see, that's where you see the distinct difference in the K through 12 market versus the commercial market is the providers um, really don't provide anything. And it's, it's an interesting, 
it's an interesting situation because in the education market, K through 12, the two big guys there, Google and Microsoft, uh, especially Google, have uh, had a brilliant strategy and they've given K through 12 all this technology for free. So when you look at the K through 12 market right now, um, Google is the dominant player in terms of market share. Now they have greater than 60, 65% of the market share in K through 12 in North America. And the statistics for Chromebooks being shipped worldwide into the education markets, not just in the United States, but everywhere are just off the charts. But, you know, going back to your question there, Paul, when you look at that, Microsoft, um, has great security components. Um, mm-hmm. They offer advanced persistent threat components. They have a, a cloud application security component. They have a lot of different, oh, they have many different layers of licensing depending on where you fall into their, their, their licensing model. But both Microsoft and Google do offer very good security and protection options, but it comes at a price and it comes at, at a learning curve. And one of the challenges right now that we saw and we're meeting this needs is most K through 12 organizations do not have very robust IT staffs Mm -hmm. and even smaller, if at all, cybersecurity trained staff. They're trying to just simply support the needs of the district and keep the lights on and keep, um, you know, educational technology functions moving. Right. Now, with G Suite, uh, you know, I've been doing uh, IT and computer stuff basically my whole life. And when I tried to go in and apply policies inside of G Suite and understand how you might have profiles and policies, I was like, wow, that's a hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, that was my assumption and I abandoned it completely. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wanted to pull my hair out. Yeah, right. (laughs) You guys guys see what happened to that. That's exactly it. Um, We... You know, we take an approach of we try to say, well, one of our taglines is, is we say cloud security made easy or, you know, cybersecurity for K through 12 made easy. And that has resonated so well with our customer base. And we have so many people tell us, oh, my gosh, you've this has been you know so good to work with because it's it's easy to deploy. It's easy to use, easy to maintain. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, you know, Google and Microsoft both require you have to really have extensive knowledge of the systems to apply the policies to whether it be DLP or threat protection or just general mm-hmm. uh, content. So there was a, there was a big need for it. And when we're trying to bring our experience in the commercial market space and apply that into the K through 12 world and, and then really customize it and make it education centric. Uh, and it's been a very successful uh, start to that process. So, yeah, so I've worked in sorry Matt, I've worked in education before, and I'm familiar with COPA and FERPA. Um, h- how do you deal with the the privacy, which is very different in an educational environment than most corporations? Absolutely, and that is one of the the big things that's driving um, this this movement now is that data privacy and student data privacy are becoming way more of a of a concern than ever before because you know you go back 10 years ago and everything was still on-premise systems they could lock into data centers and protect behind legacy firewall concepts and and even then a lot of it was in filing cabinets or places that were under a physical lock and key but um, today there is uh, 40 out of 50 states here in the U.S. have passed some form of uh, student data privacy or data privacy rules that protect the districts and we we help many of districts meet those needs so being that we're a 100 percent cloud-based solution we work through apis into microsoft and google 
where an OAuth token is granted to us. And we don't see any of the data. So what's nice is we're not we're not hosting the data, we're not backing it up, we're not uh, copying, sharing it. We ourselves have gone through stringent um, compliance checks so that we meet FERPA and COPA mm-hmm. types of requirements. And so we've gone through various uh, regu- you know, various industry watchdog groups and industry um, bodies that do uh, analysis of it. So like, for example, I keep safe and, and the student data privacy pledge and the uh, student data privacy consortium. We are members of all those and we've gone through their certification processes. So that's uh, uh, something that's very near and dear to our hearts for sure. So if, if I were to describe kind of what you do I think of this management console that sits outside of Google and, and Microsoft um, that makes it easy for IT staff, probably, um, because like you said, there's not a lot of security folks in these environments, to actually configure and apply policies to help protect the data that's sitting in those platforms. Is that is that an, a, 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 a kind of an easy analogy discussion? Is that how you kind of work? Yeah, that, that's... That's a, a very, you know, I think good high level analogy. Absolutely. So the really tr- that that kind of brings it together. You're dealing with a lot of school districts out there. And again, various sizes. We have customers as small as five, six hundred students in a rural school. We have uh, school districts in large metropolitan areas that are, you know, upwards of 100, 150,000 students. And um, depending on the school, the the one thing applies the same is just what you said there is that we bring a, a, a web-based console that allows them to create in a very easy to do manner uh, policies around data protection, DLP uh, and remediation control. So what we're bringing to the table is first and foremost, we bring unparalleled visibility into their Gmail, Google Drive, shared drives, Microsoft Exchange Online, OneDrive, SharePoint, depending on the school. We're giving them greater visibility into the data that's in there and how staff and students are interacting with that data and sharing files and emailing and uploading. And then we give them a easy-to-use console platform dashboard that allows them to set up policies and rules on how that data can be interacted with. We're also doing your traditional cybersecurity threat protection of, um, you know, we're looking for malware and phishing attempts that are coming in through either Gmail or uh, Exchange Online. Uh, we're, we're looking at how files are being shared. We're looking for inappropriate content when you're maybe dealing with student uh, situations. It's, it's just incredible the number of use cases that are out there today. And again, when we first kind of came into the education market, we were servicing, um, you know, commercial customers, the challenges of cybersecurity in the commercial world almost seem easy compared to dealing with cybersecurity and cyber safety and compliance in the education world, because you're, you're having to bring in a whole new factor of dealing with student bodies and, and kids and their interaction with systems. So yes, you're right. It's, it's the, you, you gave a good, I think simple analogy to say we bring a uh, an outside console that allows these schools to then accomplish things much easier than if they were trying to do it through uh, the command line or the you know I was at a Microsoft education conference and many of the answers to a lot of things were PowerShell 
and you <laughs> you look at some of these um, IT staffs at some of these schools and their eyeballs just kind of roll. But Google's getting to be just as bad where it's like, well, use use um, you know an open source tool called Google Apps Manager and do it through the command line. So we're, we're giving them a, a much more streamlined approach to it. Plus, they don't have to go in and figure out the configuration in all these different services, right? Because you got configuration settings over on the Gmail side, then the Google Drive side. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's not centralized in any really easy way, right? You, there's a lot of different places where configurations matter, and sometimes you'll miss it. We see this in cloud deployments all the time, right? There's so many different cloud services. All the configuration that has to happen to not keep your S3 bucket exposed, they exist in these large suites as well. And so mm -hmm. anything to do to kind of centralize that and, and make it easier to manage will help protect the environment. Absolutely. It, it is, a, you know, it is about all about first and foremost, let's make sure we're protecting the environment and we understand these things. Um, but it is also, like you said, there are so many different variables that are involved in this. Um, and, and you have to look at when you look at, uh, I'll give you an example, just, you know, right here in our, our home state of Colorado. There's roughly 175 public school districts in the state. But uh, as you know, being you know from Colorado, the bulk of the state population sits within the front range between Fort Collins and Colorado Springs with Denver in the middle. And so you know, we have that same model. You look at around the United States, you look at Texas, you know, there's 1,200 public schools. When you look at, like, for example, just Colorado and Texas, less than 20% of the schools are greater than say 2000 students. So a lot of the school districts we service out there, they might only have an IT staff of one, two, three people. And those folks have, in many cases, come from the classroom side and they've moved into instructional technology and now they're responsible for all the IT. So they're not a G Suite or Microsoft certified admin. So they're just got the basic skills to manage and, and support and maintain it. So when you start talking about cybersecurity, it gets even more daunting. So exactly what you talked about when you're dealing with all the different variables that, you know, we're, your, your general audience, a lot of us that, you know, we, that you interview and we have these conversations, we, we get it. We understand it. Like, okay, this is great. But again, when we, we made that full pivot and saw what was happening in the K through 12 market space, we're like, wow, this is incredible. And Microsoft and Google, you know, the other thing, too, is they're, they're coming in with these enterprise-grade solutions that are very good products. When you get to Microsoft, you know, you know E5, A5 level and their advanced security products, and then even Google Enterprise Editions, um, you know, advanced security controls, these are great for the dedicated, trained cybersecurity, you know, administrators in the commercial world. But you get into a K-12 through school district, very few you know, sure, you get into the very large, big school districts. Yeah, they're going to have that kind of staff. But the bulk of it, you look at 80 plus percent of all school districts out there, it's too daunting for them. And they're just, they're overwhelmed. Yeah. Yep. Very true. <clears throat> uh, so uh, let's Sorry, talk. I, I didn't no, have no, any, no, question, no, any more questions. No, yeah. I have, so when I think about from a value proposition, I mean, obviously, ease of administration, uh, simplifying the security task. It just, uh, my guess is it's just making it easier for people who don't have the skill set to manage these environments. Is that, is that a good way to summarize it? That, yes, that's one of the many value propositions. It's, is um, by bringing an easy to use platform, but with enterprise grade commercial type of, you know, 
pedigree, if you would, uh, we've packaged it into a platform that makes it very easy and efficient for the school district not only to implement it and try it out and see how it works. We offer a free trial and and allow them to quickly analyze what do they have because you think many of these districts out there have never had anything in place because if you kind of stop and look at it, the evolution of internet, cloud-based computing, you know, the education market kind of was the last to adopt it. You know, the commercial market was more on the cutting edge in, in some cases, but when you look at just say Google and Microsoft Office uh, 365, you're, you're the last really eight eight to ten years. I mean Google, Google and Gmail and all that. You know, you're inside of a ten year span. So um, a lot of them now, it's it's kind of catching up to them. So you're absolutely right. We we give them something that's very uh, straightforward and easy to use, and they can get a lot of things accomplished with less. But also the architecture. When you think about many uh, legacy security approaches, you know, I'm going to go back to your favorite topic and we talk about CASB and proxies of the, the Gartner de- defined box of a CASB. Um, that there's no way that a school district is going to kind of deploy that. I mean, you know, the last thing they need to do is, you know, and the last thing this world needs is another endpoint agent that, uh, that that's got to be installed on somebody's laptop or machine or Chromebook and then tell them they've got to run your students or staff through this login. I mean, it's hard enough to implement those kinds of things in the commercial world, but you get into the education world and you're trying to, you know, cast a net around these things. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's daunting. It's crazy. And so where we've been received so well is being that we're a software as a service platform, all using APIs and a district, regardless of their, size, if they're a small school or whether they're a gigantic school, they can deploy it instantaneously across their environment and then have that single kind of dashboard, if you would, to give them this visibility. And we support both Microsoft and uh, Google G Suite. We also support other file sharing apps like Box, Dropbox, Slack, because we every now and then we do come across those in the education market. Um, and it's interesting to see how Slack and some of those are coming into the education market by giving them just an easier way to do it, it's, it's been very, you know, very well received. And we saw that even in the commercial market with our commercial customers before we made the full pivot. Um, and it's just, it's, again, it's, it's amazing how so few a cybersecurity company out there is, is really addressing purely the education market and understanding. And it's, it's exploding. I mean, you think about, um, for all of us, you know, yeah, we, we might be like, whoa, you know, technology and education, because when we were growing up and going through schools, there wasn't the technology that's there today. But now within the past, you know, you know, five to 10 years, more data has been created in school districts in the cloud than ever before in history because of the technology of Google and now Microsoft Office 365 in schools, uh, one-to-one computing uh, in my Again, like when just in my own world, my kids have both been working on Chromebooks and doing things inside of Google Drive and Gmail since they were in kindergarten. So it's it is now a new evolution, and it's um, it's a it is a and in kind of I don't want to say frightening because uh, I don't want to scare things off, but it is kind of daunting to look at some of the the security challenges that are out there because education yeah, now. David, is, along those lines, um, and I know you're focused on the cloud aspect of it, but. Uh-huh. My concern is Chrome OS because largely I don't see a lot being talked about in terms of the security of Chrome OS. 
the what happens if someone creates a new malware malware strain that is targeting Chrome OS? What defenses do we have? I've actually seen some articles of people that write entire blog posts and articles that say you don't have to worry about security if you're running Chrome OS. And I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. That's that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yeah, that that you're you're kind of heading down another path too that we 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 talk about. So when you're when you look at you know, Chromium and then, you know, what's the underlier into Chrome OS, which obviously were all Linux kind of derivatives, uh, or at least that's kind of where they got their start. Yeah, that's a, that's become now the new, sort of the new battleground. And that's a mm-hmm. big hot topic right now, not just in education, but even in the commercial world, because Google has made a lot of strides in the past few years um, in terms of, you know, Chromebooks and how Google's now being used. I mean, our company, we run 100% on G Suite. Um, everybody's running, you know, we have a BYOD kind of any device you want. We mm-hmm. let people have the choice of it. Um, my entire sales and, uh, organization has Chromebooks. In fact, that one I think you have sitting there on your, your table, mm-hmm. we have the Pixel Books. Um, and yeah, that, that is an area now that our R&D and, and, and chief technology office are, are exploring is that's kind of our next kind of direction and we're looking at the roadmap is how do we extend our technology from the cloud into the Chrome area itself? And that's becoming a big increasing demand from uh, the K through 12 market is that how do we, we're securing what's going on when they come into the cloud. So we see everything that happens, you know, in this case in G suite or Azure, but you're absolutely right. Chrome OS and the Chromebook side of things are kind of becoming a, a growing concern I don't necessarily have a, a great answer for you right now. That's an area that we're certainly exploring, but obviously Google keeps talking and, and is doing more and more to say, hey, we're locking this down. But as you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft said that too, right? And even yeah. after their focus on security uh, came about, I mean, in logically legacy code, and I get that, there were very destructive worms that ran around. But we haven't seen... Uh, at least I haven't. I mean, there probably are strains of malware that, that do focus on, on Chrome OS. But my concern is I don't see a lot of the research. So it was encouraging when you said, David, yes, we're working on, you know, researching. Uh, I, I think it should be both attack techniques and defensive techniques on that platform because I don't think it's undergone uh, a degree of scrutiny that Linux and Mac OS and other more popular operating systems are, are experiencing. Although, if you're telling me that... Um, like our school district and all these school districts across the the U.S. primarily, I would imagine, are running on Chromebooks. That kind of scares me, especially when we think about nation-state attacks and the prevalence of ransomware targeting municipalities. I don't want to give anyone ideas. If you're evil attackers listening, I know you listen too. Uh, (laughs) But but yeah, bringing this into Mm -hmm. the education side and going after the students, that's a scary proposition. Yes. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, K-12 school districts, not just in the United States, but around the globe have now moved into the top five most targeted cyber threats and cyber targets. Um, You know, Verizon, IBM, a variety of other groups that put out research reports each year. You know, in the last three years, the Verizon data breach reports, you know, education keeps moving up and it's been in the top five the last few years right up there with finance, retail, government. Why is that? Um, How many kids under the age of 18 have had their, you know, used their first name, last name, social security number, date of birth to apply Mm -hmm. for a loan or a credit card? Mm -hmm. So it's this treasure trove of 
uh, person identifiable information that can be, you know, used for things. And, you know, obviously it's sad too, to see more and more, you know, ransomware attacks and other things. Uh, most recently there was that, you know, this incident in the state of Louisiana where almost they, they declared a state of emergency and pretty much statewide, they shut down the internet to all public school systems because it was, um, you know, threats and ransomware and attacks coming in. But when you come back to, you know, the scenario of Google and Microsoft and different things, you know, yeah, that is a, of a, of a big concern, both from a cybersecurity type of hack threat standpoint, but also, you know, the different types of cyber safety things where you're, you know, exposing school districts and children now to more areas of, you know, hey, I've got this device in my hand, one-to-one, everything's being delivered through the, the Chromebook. It's a case where, like you said, what if there was this one mass bug or attack or malware that shuts everything down? Are these schools going to, are they going to come to a complete halt because they're delivering the entire day's lesson plan? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like I said, my son uh, in his level in junior high all day long, I mean, I could check at any given time, I can log into Google Classroom and I can see all of his schoolwork that he's working on because everything he does all day long comes through the Google Classroom right. and it's through Google Forms, Google Docs. Or, or not working on. It's amazing <laughs> that technology wipes away some of those things when, you know, I tell my parents, I don't have any homework, right? If my son, who's like in middle school now too, right, yeah. uh, in sixth grade, goes, I don't have any homework. I'm like, Dude, I got the email from your teacher. I got Google Classroom. Like, you haven't completed these. Like, show me oh, you yeah. completed these assignments, right? Yeah. Uh, which yeah. I think is a, a, a valuable tool as long as you're – I firmly believe in open communications on mm-hmm. areas yeah, such absolutely. as how are we going to approach your assignments, right? Yeah. Am I going to manage all of your homework for you? No, but there is going to be a process for doing that that now involves technology. It's very much the same way when we control access to the internet apps – devices and, and, yeah. and technology, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Exactly right. You know, it's, so, you, you know, you gentlemen, um, you spend your days working with, uh, you know, what I kind of call the RSA black hat crowd, the commercial crowd. And it is, you know, it's, it is a new, you know, that's where our background comes from. And it is kind of a new, you know, a new adventure for us when I go to these conferences, events and large education conferences, and I give talks and, you know, I, I was at a, the, a big convention in, in Texas last week in Austin, which was their state. Um, it was called the Texas computer education association and roughly 8,000 or so attendees. And, and um, you know, I gave a talk on cybersecurity and they had to move me into a bigger room and there was a hundred plus people standing room only kind of thing because it is such a hot topic. And so again, we are, we as a company, when we made the pivot to decide to be 100% focused on the K through 12 market, it's a passion that drives us. Um, you know, we just yesterday had a very large school district uh, uh, from here in the state of Colorado. That's one of our customers. They've been on the platform now going on three years. They, um, their chief technology officer, came to present to our company to just thank us and tell us what you're doing is valuable and it's needed. And and right now we're one of the really only players outside of Google and Microsoft that are offering these types of security um, components. So, you know, it's, it is a different daily lingo in terms of talking about cyber attacks and cyber threats and, and when you get into say cyber safety, but what's, what's incredible is that again, the type of technology and the 
AI and machine learning algorithms that we're doing for data loss prevention and how we can apply those things to student safety and student harm and detect, you know, not just, hey, somebody's, you know, sharing a file that contains, you know, personal identifiable information or financial information. And are we supposed to be sharing that with that person and put that control in place to automatically correct that? But also the when you get into the self-harm, threats to oneself, threats to the district, you know, things like suicide, bombs, you know, uh, bomb threats, you know, harm, bullying. That's just a whole new side of the cybersecurity world that that is, I think, been not addressed enough. And we're starting to see that that become more and more of a, um, a kind of a frontline concern. So the cybersecurity world in K through 12 is a is a, is a growing space and we're excited to be there. And, and we just were excited for this opportunity too, to thank you to, to share that and let other people out there know that it's, it's there. Now, maybe while I'd like to see as a parent, more vendors get into this space, right. uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't necessarily <laughs> need to see more vendors come into our Agreed. space. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Um, well, David, thank you so much for appearing on enterprise security weekly uh, folks that want to learn more managedmethods.com. David, again, thank you so much. Paul, Matt, thank you. And with that, we'll take a short break. Come back with our sponsored interview from ExtraHop. Stay tuned. Detecting and responding to threats in the cloud is harder than doing it on-prem. Even when you do have the visibility you need, legacy security workflows weren't designed for the speed and complexity of cloud environments. Cloud-native security solutions from ExtraHop are purpose-built to spot threats across the hybrid attack surface, provide detailed investigation steps, and help you automate response. Request your 30-day free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. You want to get the right things done for your security program. Sounds simple. But what are the right things for you? What does done mean? And how are you going to get there? Rapid7 realizes more than anyone how hard this can be. While Rapid7's Insight platform offers you industry-leading vulnerability management and detection and response solutions, their focus is on understanding where you are so that they can help you get where you're going. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Rapid7 to get started. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Our next webcast is tomorrow, actually, with Extra, Extra Hop, Hop uh, talking about how to collect uh, packets and do packet capture in the cloud. You can go to securityweekly.com, click that webcast drop-down menu, and uh, register for that. Yes. Which, I mean... We're going to have fun. You should do Jeff, that Jeff, you can't give away too much information. That's right. <laughs> Right, Jeff Heininger right. <laughs> is here with us. He's a principal sales engineer at Extra Hop. Jeff, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Jeff, I wanted to start uh, by talking about uh, how mature your cloud programs are in your respective uh, or, or the organizations we work with, right? I try to gauge where some of our audience might be through some Twitter polls and other surveys, right? But you work hand in hand with customers. What are some of the different maturity levels that you've seen with cloud adoption uh, and how, uh, what's the security paradigm like in each one of those uh, phases? Yeah, fantastic, fantastic question. It's a great place to level set. So I'm broadly speaking, we can say that there's really two types of organizations, those that are already in the cloud and those that are on their way. So I, yeah. I think everyone understands the importance of cloud for you know, agility, enabling the business to experiment, but also focus on its core competency and, and not do things like run mailbox servers or or run directory servers, uh, run you know infrastructure period. And so you know really, if you look at the the typical cloud adoption curve, first you'll see organizations 
moving, uh, adopting SaaS services, right? So that's really the mm -hmm. easiest place to dip your toe in the water. And there's a set of security concerns and considerations around SaaS and how you protect data uh, in a SaaS environment. Uh, after that, you're really looking at seeing adoption around infrastructure as a service. Finally, moving into serverless technologies, so function as a service. Uh, you know, platform as a service in, in a lot of ways goes hand in hand with IaaS, um, and so so those are typically the the milestones, if you will. Right, and then the there's like a million well. ways to put all those pieces together. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, there certainly are. I mean, there. This is not a linear path necessarily. Mm. So you know you can you can certainly have organizations that are born in the cloud that uh, start there and start with serverless. Uh, we see you know for traditional enterprises that are uh, terrestrial, if you will, uh, that are in running data centers or have their servers in co-location facilities, the the typical path is you know let's move those workloads. Uh, into the cloud, first into IaaS, and then as we start to build some muscle around service delivery and we, we develop some comfort around what our new attack surface looks like, then we start to, you know, say, uh, refactor those traditional multi-tier applications into uh, more of a microservices architecture. Yeah, and I think one of the things I talk a lot about with analysts, because I do a lot of analyst calls, is, you know, in the early days of cloud adoption, it was, I took a server and I moved it to the cloud as a dedicated EC2 instance, kind of a one-to-one -one relationship. Mm -hmm. What I'm starting to yep. see, and I'm curious on this, where we are kind of in this maturity curve, is what I'm starting to see now is that still happens, but then what you start to see is when people really understand the different services that are being offered by the cloud platforms and Amazon and, and Microsoft both have exploded the number of service offerings and even Google as well. But you know, those are the kind of the two biggies. You're starting to see a move away from dedicated EC2 instances, for example, into more platform types of, of services, which creates a really interesting challenge, I think, for the industry in some respects, because a lot of us really focused our early days of security around the network and the endpoint. Um, and as you abstract away parts of the endpoint into these platforms as a services, the, the techniques we have to use to secure these new platforms are different. And as that migration continues, it creates new challenges for us um, and probably new ways and new techniques. Uh, how much of that adoption from like what I would call cloud adoption phase one um, to now this kind of phase two of people moving into platform as a service? Yeah, so from what we're seeing at ExtraHop, you know, the serverless is, is absolutely here to stay. I mean, it's been around now for five years or so, and uh, it's it's becoming mainstream, certainly. But uh, I'll still say there are, for a number of organizations, uh, particularly the uh, just, you know, the Fortune 500, kind of Fortune 1000, Global 2000 market segment, it, you have this split where... Uh, the super mature shops are, are all in and and they are uh, maybe even a majority of their services are running on on serverless. But then we also see, you know, a lot of those organizations can be uh, slow to change. They're supporting legacy applications that they've had for a number of years. And, and so there's still, uh, I would say, a preponderance of EC2 based workloads as, as well. 
And so, uh, whereas serverless is more aspirational or more of a more of a roadmap item for those organizations. Got it. Well, yeah, because you have to rewrite potentially your entire app, at least a significant portion, to get it from running on a legacy server right. to running yeah. it in a serverless kind or of utilizing a, a, a crawl, walk, run kind of scenario, right? right. You got to kind of get the basics down, that inter- get your delivery right. models down. Then you're ready to go uh, to more of these advanced services. But I think over the next three to five years, we're going to see more of that shift into these more serverless type platforms, which I, I think as that accelerates, it just creates some really interesting challenges in the industry. Yeah, that's right. I, I would say like, the industry as a whole is needs to be thinking about those challenges, but the, for the here and now, you know, there there's a whole uh, raft of challenges that organizations are are dealing with today, uh, just around whether it's uh, containerized workloads or even you know VM based workloads running on something like EC2 or or an Azure virtual machine that uh, that organizations need to think about. I mean, if you if you just take the uh, new capabilities around automation particularly automated infrastructure provisioning when you start thinking about infrastructure as code, uh, when you think about you know things like auto-scaling groups, uh, even for VM-based workloads and, and applications, you know, at the point that you can mushroom out your server farm to from say dozens or handfuls to thousands or, or tens of thousands of VMs, now what, is, what are the implications of that for your attack surface? What are the implications of that for uh, data governance for your internal security controls, and so you know, while while serverless is su- is definitely something that folks should be should be thinking about and planning for, uh, I, I think you know the more pressing and and more immediate needs are around you know how to uh, sort of organize the chaos and uh, ensure that uh, that audit trails exist, ensure that uh, observability is uh, a really a requirement that's built in at the design phase for whether it's a migration or for uh, an architecture discussion versus something that's that's an afterthought or or bolted on after the fact. Jeff, when we look at network uh, traffic analysis in the cloud, is it easier to achieve if I'm doing infrastructure as a service in like an EC2 or other, you know, cloud provider? And then, like, what are the challenges as you make that migration? Maybe you've got containers, maybe you're utilizing services and, and serverless in the cloud. Yeah, good question. So, you know, IaaS is really the the low-hanging fruit for network visibility. And, and the reason for that is simple. The cloud service providers have either already shipped or, are, uh, or have made available or are uh, planning on making available some kind of native network traffic mirroring capability. So mm-hmm. in, in Amazon's case, this is the VPC traffic mirroring capability. Azure has uh, announced a virtual network tap and GCP has made available a, uh, a packet mirroring capability as well that's in preview. And so what this means is that uh, organizations can apply a bit of config to say the the network interface that's running on their IaaS VM right. and have the cloud provider itself copy those packets and send them to an analysis tool. And so uh, built into that that conversation is this requirement to A, have a, a network interface uh, that's tappable, right? And so that's where things like tapping traffic for for uh, something like a, a function, you know, becomes, becomes difficult. Right, because so, so yeah, uh, the difference 
is in in EC2 or you know however that looks in other cloud providers it's like a basically a virtual machine that has a network yeah. interface and so that more easily transfers so the transition into the cloud there's no one standing up going well how do we get network you know packet captures it's pretty you can wrap your brain around it because there's a network interface right but now where you're exactly. going is what happens when you're using all these other services, <laughs> right? Well, however, whatever they are, you know, they could be for containers, they could be for API gateways, what, whatever. How do you get that traffic? Sure. Yeah. And, and today, you know, it's, it's actually not possible. So if you if you've got a function, it doesn't have an interface. Now, we, we know that Lambda functions do have an elastic network interface, mm -hmm. but uh, today it's not possible to include those in a VPC traffic mirroring session. Interesting. So that's something that you know, we would we'd be looking to Amazon to add at some point in the future, but it's not available today. You know, I, I think it's worth taking a step back, though, uh, before to to really look at why this cap why the cloud service providers have made this capability available in the first place. So, in other words, what why packet analysis for uh, as a way of getting observability into cloud workloads? This is kind of an interesting question, right? Uh, cloud service providers already provide a number of different native capabilities for uh, for getting observability. And if you think about it, uh, all of them in some form or fashion boil down to streaming events that uh, are captured in logs and then stored and then parsed and analyzed, where then in, in some cases, you know, machine learning algorithms or human analysts can comb over that data set and surface alerts and trigger automated remediation or automated corrective action. And, and this could be you know, from a, an InfoSec standpoint, say from uh, automating the different parts of the incident response playbook, or even from a service delivery standpoint to say, automatically trigger a, an auto scaling event uh, to add capacity where, where needed and things like that. But you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, all of the native capabilities that cloud service providers are offering have to do with first, uh, getting some logs stored centrally so they can be analyzed. And so why, you know, it's a natural question to ask why packets, right? And the, you know, one of the things that we've, that we've found in, and anyone that's been in, in the space uh, for a significant amount of time will realize you know, cloud service providers don't offer any native capability for packet analysis. And, and in fact, they're very explicit about this uh, to the point of you know, drilling it into you as you you prepare for your you know, your certification exams, for instance. Uh, you you might see questions that uh, that allude to you know a need to set up uh, some intrusion detection or intrusion prevention system, and you might be asked you know what native tools would you use to do this, and you know it turns out that the answer is is none of the above. Right, go to the the marketplace find a third party solution. And so you know, cloud providers have been explicit about not offering that capability themselves. Uh, and then, but they've also, uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, have introduced native cloud packet mirroring capabilities to really smooth the path of packet acquisition for the third party tools in their, their technology ecosystems. And so why, why is that? You know, uh, and I think what we're seeing is you know, the answer has to do with quality and speed to detect faults and robustness of response that's enabled by that early detection. So I want to I unpack both of those for a moment if I could. Mm. 
So if you think about uh, making this paradigm shift from protect and prevent, whether we're talking about service availability and preventing outages, or if we're talking about information security incidents and breaches and compromise, you know, I think the world has by and large transitioned from this notion of let's, uh, let's prevent breaches or prevent outages and assume that they're actually inevitable and shift our attention and our focus to how to recover quickly. And that's really the, the new sort of accepted way of thinking about resiliency is quick recovery. And so quick recovery obviously requires uh, robust early warning systems. And so you know, it turns out that you know, one of the, the Achilles heels of event streaming event data to log collection systems is this uh, minutes latency that can that can be experienced. So also, I, I think, and Jeff, correct yeah, me if ahead. I'm wrong, that logs in the cloud are probably even more problematic than they were when you were on premise, right? Because every service has to support some kind of logging functionality. The central logging facility that you've chosen then has to support whatever logs those services are spitting out. Like in AWS, I noticed you could like link to like a Splunk instance or whatever. There's lots of ways to collect logs. It seems to me like right. there's a lot of points of failure <laughs> in there uh, as to the level of logging, how you configure logging in all of the ways in which you can deploy something into the cloud, correct? Yeah, that's that's. I mean, all of that baggage around log collection and analysis exists in the on-prem world as well, right? So there's a, there's a lot of options. There are there are certainly some best practices, but you know, at the end of the day, there are it's pretty onerous to set up a, a log collection regime that is dynamic and and sort of intelligent enough to keep pace with changing infrastructure. So, and, and this is true in the data center world as well, right? So VMs spin up, they spin down, they V motion across a data center mm -hmm. and, you know, log forwarders can get shut off. Uh, they can get mm -hmm. disabled certainly by a, an adversary in the event of, of an instance or, or a VM compromise. And so, you know, there's this great irony that exists where uh, not only are, are logs difficult to uh, procure in the first place, but, you know, typically at the moment that you need them the most, they, they're often not there. Right. Uh, and that's either yeah, because they've been disabled maliciously or because, uh, you know, it's too cost prohibitive yes. to say log every uh, interaction with the database table that might contain your regulated data, your customer data, your, your PII data, you know, the, the crown jewels that you're, you're charged with protecting. Right. Uh, yeah, because then you're charged with, for storage uh, of said logs right. and you're that's charged right. for access of <laughs> said logs, uh, whether sure. it's in or yeah. out. Or, well, yeah, because yeah. It, because yep. in the cloud provider, mm -hmm. data in's free, data out costs you money, right? So right. not only do you have to store those logs, now you have to extract those logs out, potentially, that's right. to analyze them. There's a big cost component. And here's the other this. vulnerability that I think uh, is kind of an overarching exposure for many different cloud services. The Black Hills team uh, provided a specific example where either you as the user are trying to spin something new up in the cloud or as the elasticity of the cloud allows for new things to be created automatically, those defaults when things are getting created, like if you ever go to AWS and just use the get starting guide, it creates a whole bunch of stuff for you. So you don't have to worry about VPCs or blogging or any of that stuff, but it's using the default yep. method. So if something new spins up in your cloud, it may not be configured to go to your central logging 
place. That's why I like yeah. having the network visibility because even in the cloud, the network doesn't lie, right? And you understand exactly. where there might be yeah. some limitations on that. I still think it's better than logs. I still think it's better than trying to put an endpoint agent on everything you're deploying in because that falls down somewhat when you get to serverless as well. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really good point. I mean, particularly, you know, we, we're seeing with organizations that are on their way to the cloud that are in the middle of a migration, a lot of them are suffering from this affliction we refer to as the great stall, where you know you get some workloads migrated, some VMs mm -hmm. migrated, uh, but then uh, a lot of times the it'll be the infosec team actually will come in and say, well, wait a minute, we 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 got to pump the brakes here. Uh, we are moving these workloads, we're spinning stuff up in the cloud. You know, this is this is the wild west. We don't have our arms around it. We're not able to enforce our. Uh, you know, data access policies, our data right. usage policies, our data retention policies, identity management implications, right? Our, our identity management policies. So uh, we we really need to you know put the uh, pump the brakes on on the initiative to migrate to the cloud. And this is this is problematic uh, for, uh, for the business, right? Because let's say the business has already understood and bought into the notion that cloud is going to be the great enabler. It's it's going to be the thing that finally lets IT. Uh, fulfill the promise that it's been making to the business for years of, you know, making the business more competitive and, and things like that. Uh, and so to, to have that kind of an initiative come to a screeching halt uh, until security can kind of catch up and, and ramp up on what, what the attack service is now looking like or about to look like, it's, it's a real problem. And so, you know, uh, when we talk about you know, the inability to install a, an EDR agent or the fact that, you know, new workloads might come into existence that will never be on the radar uh, is, a, is a real problem for security. So uh, I was actually working with a, a customer here in, in the Seattle area recently. Wizards of the Coast uh, is a gaming development company, and uh, they were coming to grips with this tension between, you know, giving security the visibility that's needed to protect the estate while not standing in the way of developer productivity, right? And so uh, another sort of piece of baggage around installing an endpoint agent is this has to be vetted, right? It's got, uh, it actually ends up being a, a gate to uh, developers redeploying infrastructure, redeploying workloads. Uh, and so security is in this really tough spot. Uh, when they implemented ExtraHop, what they found was the network leveraging the network as a source of data, right? By analyzing data in flight, security could have that early detection and automated response system and capability without imposing any constraints or any burdens on their developers. Yeah, one of the the challenges always in the in the cloud has been lack of visibility and control, um, and. So we tried to do that with endpoints, but to your point, when you think about these architectures and the need to embed agents on all these in these different microservices, that doesn't really scale very well. If you can provide That's right. ease of visibility and control at the network layer and give them those same capabilities at the network layer versus the endpoint layer, there's less friction for the development teams because now they don't have to worry about, well, is that agent going to impact the performance of my application or is it going to cause something else to happen in the app that we haven't tested for in our, in our QA testing and, and all the other things that happen. This is a really 
It's an easier way to get that visibility and control. And now that the cloud providers have given us the ability to collect that data, it should make it hopefully a lot easier for security teams to get comfortable with that approach. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So uh, using the network, and, and this is kind of getting back to this question of, of why did the cloud providers expose this native traffic mirroring capability to their third-party packet analyzer ecosystem? And, and this is exactly why. Uh, because this, uh, it really enables infosec teams to no longer uh, be an obstacle to the cloud migration initiative, and so organizations can get past the great stall, right, and complete their cloud migration project uh, with infosec, you know, along along with them. So, uh, because now infosec uh, is no longer sacrificing visibility as that that migration proceeds. Yeah, that yeah, I mean that that's definitely a great approach because I, we we talk a lot about DevOps and and all the things that have to happen in that environment and and slowing that train down is not in the best interest of the business, which usually leads to some level of getting the application out there without any visibility and control just because it's got to get out there. Um, so yeah, you don't you don't want that stall, that great stall to happen. Well, and you also don't want a different solution for on-premise, uh, for AWS, for and Google, my, yeah, and for Microsoft, yeah. right? And it sounds like that's where right. ExtraHop is moving towards, is giving me that unified. Certainly today, I believe you can get great visibility in AWS and on-premise. And that all comes together in the same console in ExtraHop, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So from just from a product perspective, for those that may not know, the, the ExtraHop system is an appliance-based technology we also offer it as a SaaS service, uh, but the you know the core of the technology is is an appliance based. So if customers want to manage these appliances themselves, they can deploy them wherever their workloads live. So any any cloud provider or uh, certainly on premises or uh, in data centers or in branch offices. Right, it's that centralization that's important because. To, to your point, Paul. Right, yeah. we're going to see customers in a hybrid in a multi cloud environment. And I don't want to, because we'll end up back in the SIM days in some respects, right? I'll have, you know, all these disparate systems and I got to figure out how to integrate all this data together yeah. to get me that, that de early detection. Mm -hmm. if, if I can centralize all that, I streamline what those integration points look like at the network layer. Well, and it's nice to do that at the network layer too, because log formats are all over the place. <laughs> At least with TCP IP, there's some standardization. Right? A packet is a packet a is packet. a packet. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, for the mo I mean, everyone has their interpretation of RCs and different protocols, right? And that's largely what ExtraHop is helping you with as well. But there's more of a standard, right? Which is why I I yeah. really like that to have that in my arsenal and to be able to unify that. I think is really important. I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, one of the so so what you're alluding to is really one of the, the most painful parts of doing log analysis, which is that normalization yeah. phase. So when you're doing uh, some kind of ETL operation, just to normalize the data so that it can be analyzed or, or say correlated across different log sources, it's really difficult. And so you know, one of the advantages that you have when doing network traffic analysis is network protocols, whether they're application layer protocols, like say for a, a different database flavors or transport protocols like TCP, they're very well defined. And so there's really no uh, need for, you know, 
to, to normalize across different sources. If something's talking TCP or if something's talking, you know, say HTTP or, or DNS, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, right? It all, it all looks the same on the wire. Yeah, we get out of the, the uh, you said ETL, I used, to, um, I used to call it ELT in the big data days, right? You extract load, then you do all your transformations to do the normalization. You, you skip some of the, you, you streamline some of those steps at the network layer where things are more consistent. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so now let's talk about, like, uh, as we round up this segment, Jeff, the customers that you're working with, obviously you don't have to name them, that uh, are really advanced on the cloud front and how they might be using uh, ExtraHub. Yeah, sure. So I mentioned Wizards of the Coast a moment ago. I'll, I'll, I can continue that story a bit. So the, um, the folks at Wizards are doing some really interesting things. So they're uh, obviously in a, in a very competitive landscape. So uh, as a content producer, as a, a game publisher, they know that if they're not creating compelling content for their users, it's very easy for users to pick up a game from one of their competitors. And so what, um, what enables them to attract and retain subscribers is really their ability to produce quality content quickly and uh, so, so how do you know what's what's going to stick? Well, the, the key to that is really experimentation. And so uh, Wizards is able to leverage the cloud and to to essentially conduct business experiments and publish new games, understand what's going to going to have market uptake and double down on those bets. And for the things that don't stick, you know, they can move on and, and conduct another experiment. And so Cloud is really an enabler for the business in in Wizards' case, and it's of course things like Magic: The Gathering Arena and uh, Magic: The Gathering Online and, and other mm. other titles that they've got uh, for a, a variety of different platforms. And so, uh, when you've got you know a number of different titles, a number of different types of content, you know, think about what uh, what your attack surface looks like. Now, if you're if you're trying to protect your intellectual property in terms of media and storylines, but also uh, ensure that you know, users of the game are not able to, say, cheat at the game. Right. Uh, and, and so uh, really protecting the experience of the player and ensuring you know, there's, there's no reputational impact to Wizards, right? again, which might, might trigger uh, some attrition or, or cause some retention issues. And so you know all of the all of those considerations are on the table for the infosec team uh, and, and it's really around securing that estate without getting in the way or hampering developer productivity and so having a frictionless way of getting situational awareness by leveraging the network is is a huge win for wizards uh, i'll mention the other the other thing that's that was valuable for the wizards folks uh, and that's this notion of using empirical data to drive decision making and drive response efforts. So if, uh, a contrast that I'll draw is with uh, doing uh, something like vulnerability management, uh, which is, is obviously a critical sort of foundational practice for any infosec organization. But if you you have to think about it maybe differently in the cloud. So if you've got ephemeral workloads, uh, who have a lifespan of minutes or days versus months or years, you're going to think about patch management differently. 
And if your work queue is being filled with a bunch of notices of, you know, what workloads are missing, what patches, you know, it, it ends up not being super actionable. And so when you're looking at real-time detection capability of, say, uh, CVEs that are actively being exploited right now, your, your focus can shift to have your analysts attend to and triage those, those things which are actually threatening your critical assets and your business operations versus, say, responding to you know, hypothetical risks that you know, in, in reality have a, a very low likelihood or, or maybe even a zero likelihood of, of actually transpiring. That's a great analogy because Paul and I have a lot of experience in the vulnerability management space. Mm -hmm. It's difficult, I think, to do effectively in the cloud because, like Jeff said, things are coming up and down all the time. Yep. You're, you're constantly pushing new releases out. I think the, one of the most um, extreme cases I saw was Etsy pushing a release every seven minutes. Think about that from a vulnerability scanning perspective for a second. It has to be done before you push the infrastructure out. Exactly. But how many people are scanning that quickly in their environment? I talk about this frequency issue in security. We scan our networks maybe once a month, once a week. We're not scanning our network every seven minutes. How are you going to catch those? And so if you're trying to enable a business to be very dynamic and flexible in the cloud, a vulnerability management program doesn't really give you a lot of benefits. It potentially slows things down, but if you can... Well, the scanning aspect doesn't. Yeah, well, potentially. It depends. Again, back to this agent. I could have an agent, I guess, installed in the environment, and it's doing it in real time. It's more composition analysis. Yes. Where I think of vulnerability management playing into your Yes, yeah, in yeah. kind of the scanning side, right? And so real-time detection capabilities, how I think are needed and have an advantage in the cloud just because of the dynamic nature of the cloud mm -hmm. where some of these more traditional kind of more, I wouldn't say static, but just they don't have that high frequency to them necessarily can struggle in the cloud. Um, so I think it's a great analogy because I, I, we see that a lot. We saw that a lot when we were at Tenable together. Um, and, and so, yeah, something different that really can detect what CVEs are being compromised right now that drive prioritization for response versus here's my list of vulnerabilities and patches that need to be applied because it's going to change yeah. <laughs> right. often. That's awesome. Uh, we do have uh, Extra Hop customer uh, coming on next week. Yeah, next week, uh, talking about their experiences with the product. Uh, as always, our listeners can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Extra Hop uh, and register for uh, a demo. And uh, Jeff, your story about uh, the Wizards company uh, is at extrahop.com forward slash wizards. I think it was a full presentation that they gave, correct? Yeah, actually, uh, Wizards took the stage at reInvent this year, speaking about how they were using VPC traffic mirroring to uh, seamlessly take advantage of ExtraHop's network detection and response capability so that InfoSec can secure the estate but without standing in the way of, of developer productivity. Fantastic. That's awesome. Jeff, thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. Yeah, it's good to be here. And, and I'll encourage folks to visit our booth at RSA uh, if you want to learn more about ExtraHop or about how, uh, say, our other customers are, are securing their cloud workloads. Fantastic. Thank you so much. With that, that will conclude this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. We'll see you next time.